This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Overcoming great challenges like COVID-19 requires great cooperation. This is Dan Hilferty, CEO of Independence Blue Cross. Most of us never imagined we'd be facing an outbreak of this magnitude. But in the face of this challenge, hospitals, public officials, and business leaders have come together. Through effective cooperation, these leaders are taking steps to keep us safe. Slowing the rate of infection from the virus will help hospitals care for those who need attention most. Remember, stay home. Leave only for essential needs. Stay informed from sources like the CDC or Department of Health. Take a break from watching the news. Stay well, exercise, and practice self-care to make sure you're physically and mentally fit. In our great region, we have a tradition of caring for each other and cooperating to get things done. We'll do it again now. For more, visit ibx.com COVID-19. Together, we will beat COVID-19. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. A radio.com station. From the Malamud and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. That is a very, very robust, vigorous, achoo sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. And welcome in on this beautiful summer Sunday morning to your radio doctor. I'm happy to be your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. In April, an article in the New York Times detailed patterns of electricity use during the pandemic. Usually power use surges between 6 and 7.30 a.m., but with no commute or getting kids off to school, data reveal that people are sleeping a bit later and staying up later. The question, is the quarantine turning us into night owls? Today we'll hear from two Jefferson University Hospital physicians about sleep medicine and various therapies, and from a patient who found the right treatment that has restored her life. Here to discuss the effects of COVID on our sleep patterns, sleep health, and disorders of sleep is Dr. Carl DeGramsci, Professor and Medical Director of the Thomas Jefferson University Sleep Disorders Center. Welcome, Carl. Great to have you here today. Thank you, Marianne. Great to be with you. So, Carl, has the pandemic led to changes in our sleep cycles? And if so, how does that impact our daily rhythms and overall health? You know, Marianne, sleep problems are pretty common in our society to begin with, right? About It's been said that about half the U.S. population experiences some sort of sleep problem at one point or another during their lives. But during this pandemic, I just see this problem of, of, of the sleeplessness as having escalated. So people are telling me that it's taking them longer time to fall asleep at night. They're telling me that after they fall asleep, they wake up a lot more. You know, they wake up a couple times, four times, five times, and just can't get back to sleep sometimes. Or they just wake up in the morning and feel very unrefreshed, like they haven't slept very well. And um, during the day, they feel a little groggy, mopey, and they don't seem to be feeling all that energetic. And, I mean, you can sort of see why this might be happening, right? I mean, people are, are working at home much more so than they were before. Um, 
their daily schedules are not rigorous anymore. They can sort of wake up later into the day and, uh, and, and, and go to bed later at night, disrupting their sleep cycle. Also, come to, you know, when you think about it, people have a lot of concerns on their minds. They're worried about the pandemic, their jobs. They're worried about relatives. They feel lonely. And many of them are more disturbed and wake up a lot more at night because of the anxiety that they have, as well as uh, you know, dreams and nightmares and things like that. So it's been a tough time from the standpoint of sleep and sleep disorders, Marianne. And I can, I can just uh, uh, see a lot of my patients now just, just kind of struggling with their sleep throughout the course of the past two months. Well, sure. And as you say, for so many reasons, people are anxious about contracting COVID or if their jobs are at risk. And I think about children too. One piece of advice that we hear is to try to stay close to your usual routine, especially children with bedtime, because in an abstract sense, it makes you feel like you have a little more control uh, and lowers anxiety if there's a sense of normal. That is something we can control. Let's go to bed at eight o'clock or whatever the usual bedtime is. And mm-hmm. Because also they still have schoolwork and the need for good sleep as we all do. Um, and as you say, if we're not running back and forth and commuting and, and the usual physical activity, we probably don't tire out as easily as we would normally. And plus every every night feels like Friday night. Yay, I have off tomorrow, I can sleep late. <laughs> and, exactly. and once you get into that, it's kind of mm-hmm. hard to change. So I guess it would be good for us to talk about good sleep habits and, and principles that keep us healthy in general. Right. So, I mean, I can't stress um, the importance of good sleep habits just for the wealth, you know, one's welfare from a physical as well as mental standpoint. And one of the most important principles is regularity, not just going to bed at the same, at the same time every day, but even more importantly, getting up out of bed at the exact same time, whether it's a you know, weekday, a vacation, or a weekend. When we wake up in the morning, get up out of bed, Marianne, that morning awakening time sort of reestablishes or synchronizes our bodies uh, to the environmental 24-hour rhythm. And, and if we don't get up at the same time, our body's rhythms disappear, so they're not synchronized with, with the rest of the 24-hour rhythm. So critical. Get up out of bed at the same time, and when you get up out of bed, try as much as possible to expose your eyes to light. So sit in front of a window, go outdoors, do something physical, get a lot of sunlight in your eyes. So your body basically has a strong time cue and knows what time it is. The other thing is um, when, when you go to bed, it's the opposite. About two hours before you go to bed, make sure that it's kind of dim out in, in your bedroom, right? Make sure that you're not having a lot of light into your eyes. If you have a television set that's on, maybe turn it off. Or if you have a lot of lights in your bedroom, dim them down. And if you can't do that, you know, I'm, I'm one of those folks who has to have my iPhone or iPad right next to me so I can take a look at it. Well, I wear those blue light filter glasses. These are glasses which you can purchase on in, in, in any uh, outlet. And it, they basically filter the blue spectrum of light from those um, emitting devices and make sure that that does not disrupt our rhythms. And why wear those? two hours before I go to bed. So very important that light in the morning and darkness or dim light in the evening. Um, many people, um, after they, you know, when they go to bed, they're so hung up on not being able to fall asleep or falling asleep that they watch the clock all the time. I've seen this happen. Patients will sort of watch the clock to make sure what time it is. Well, that worries people even more. So I say just turn around that clock, make sure you're not watching any clock, eliminate all 
cues from your environment. You know, make sure that you're not worried about what's going on outside of your uh, uh, outside of your bedroom. Um, you know, the other thing, of course, we should be doing is during the day, making sure that we're not napping too much, and especially during this pandemic time, as we're sitting around, maybe not having as much to do. We tend to lie down. I have a, you know, I call patients and I do telemedicine visits with them, and I'm looking at them while I'm talking to them, and some of them are actually in bed while they're talking to me because they've been uh-huh. napping. Well, napping really is a bad idea. It just takes away a lot of your sleep time, and so you won't be able to sleep as well at night. A couple of other things, substances, right? We All of us drink caffeine, and caffeine is not a bad thing in the morning. It just gets us going. But caffeine in the afternoon and late evening hours can really disrupt our sleep, even though we may not be you know, consciously aware of it. And other things that we can do at nighttime, like if we have a late meal, we may have a reflux, our esophagus may be churning up acid, and that makes us sleep more poorly. If we drink alcohol, alcohol may, you know, at nighttime, many people have this, a couple of drinks with dinner time, which is not such a bad thing. But if people drink too close to bedtime, that can actually disturb sleep. So those are all sort of bad habits, which we should not get into, especially, you know, with this COVID era, people drink more to keep them, their nerves a little bit sure. more sedated. Yep. Yeah. Um, and you know, you bring, yeah. uh, well, you, you bring up so many interesting points. I want to replay your words 10 times for myself because I always think, <laughs> oh, gee, I went to bed a few nights this week uh, a little bit late. So I'll, if I sleep extra on Saturday morning or on Sunday, well, you can never make up the time that you've lost. But just hearing that a key principle is to get out of bed at the same time and trigger your cycle, your waking awakening cycle. That's fascinating to me. I always thought, well, the more sleep I get, the he- you know, it's better for your health. I guess right. not. Yeah. Yeah. And I, regularity. Absolutely. Yes. And I guess too, we remind mm-hmm. patients when we talk to them, take breaks from the news. You don't want to be watching upsetting news on your way to bed, whether it's about the virus or or the ongoing uh, uh, disruptions. But also, even watching a scary movie, I know a lot of people have tended to. to I being one, my husband and I have been binge watching. And if you watch a scary spy movie, probably not a good formula right before you go to sleep. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, the other thing, Marianne, is something to think about. A lot of us have sort of anxieties, which which we carry with us day in and day out. Sure. And, And sort of managing that stress and anxiety. I mean, that's a different different technique for different people, right? But sometimes some people benefit from meditation or yoga, relaxation techniques, and these are really available all over. We can, you know, log on to a number of websites and they're available. You know, at Jefferson, we have these modules available for our employees and, and, and healthcare workers. So again, kind of setting aside a time where you can sort of de-stress, maybe meditate, and then and, uh, and, and sort of so focus on your inner thoughts and, and feelings and make sure that you manage those before you get to bed, right? When when it's kind of too late. <laughs> right. And, and I really do think that um, we have so many good things to talk about. Let's take a little break and we'll be back after this message. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. And welcome back. We're here with our guest, Dr. Carl Dagramji from the Thomas Jefferson Sleep Disorder Center. Carl, 
There are several different sleep disorders, probably the most common being obstructive sleep apnea. When does a patient know it's time to get help and see a doctor? Well, you know, um, obstructive apnea, Marion, as you know, is a, a disorder where the throat basically closes down when people sleep. Uh, and because it closes down, not enough air goes into their lungs, so they don't get enough oxygen, and they have a poor night's sleep. Now, um, many people who are tired uh, and don't sleep well do not have sleep apnea. Uh, and the question is, how? when do you know that you have apnea? When should you go see a doctor? Well, I mean, the first thought is if you can't sleep well and if you have daytime fatigue, use some of those techniques we talked about earlier, uh, you know, in terms of good sleep hygiene. And if you feel that after good sleep hygiene, you're, you're, you're fine, then no need to do much more about it. But if you're still sleepy, if you're tired during the day, you're not sleeping well, especially if you snore loudly, and especially if somebody has said to you, gosh, you know, when you sleep, there are these gaps in your breathing at night. You stop breathing. Well, I think with those combination of symptoms, you really should go see a doctor because if you have sleep apnea, not only can it cause problems with your sleep and tiredness, but it can also cause other problems with your heart and your lung and your brain that are not so good after a long period of time. So if you remain sleepy and tired and you snore and especially if somebody said to you, you kind of stop breathing in your sleep, it's time to see somebody. Yes. And, and for our listeners, the word apnea means that you stop breathing. So sleep apnea uh, suggests that while you're sleeping, and, and we used to, I, I often wonder if we're recognizing it more easily now or if it's on the rise because of, as we say, we can never put our brains to rest because there's one more text or one more email or your phone pings. And um, mm -hmm. our, we're constantly being overly stimulated. But how would you describe sleep apnea itself to our patients? And as you say, if you stop breathing, less oxygen to your lungs means less right. oxygen to your heart and brain and all your organs. So what would you, how would you define sleep apnea for our listeners? Uh, sleep apnea, uh, mm -hmm. from, a, from a medical standpoint, is the stoppage of breathing for mm -hmm. 10 seconds or greater. That's mm -hmm. really the definition. That's an apnea. And if there's a, more than five of those apneas per hour when you sleep, that is called obstructive sleep apnea. That's how it's defined. So five or more apneas per hour of sleep. Now, how do you identify it? How do you, how do, how do you identify it and how do you define it in a particular person? Well, you've got to do a sleep study, right? So we actually study people in the sleep laboratory, in our sleep lab at Jefferson, or we can actually do these home tests now where we send a kit. It's a very tiny kit. It's almost the size of a small smartphone, and it, patients wear it at nighttime for a whole night, and the information is stored in that little kit, and it's sent over to us, and we can actually diagnose the condition with these very, very simple home tests. Um, so, Marianne, the, the, this is a very easy condition to diagnose, and as many, many treatments are available for it. Sure. And I know that snoring does not always mean that you have sleep apnea or that right. um, an obstructive sleep apnea suggests, am I right, that the, the muscles in your throat are lax with age or for whatever reason, maybe medication, we'll talk about causes. But there's also, there are also other reasons when you, that you can have apnea that are not related to your throat or snoring. So if a person right. has um, snoring, you might want to think about checking them for sleep apnea. If you don't have snoring, chances are you mm. don't have obstruction in your throat. But um, what percentage of people would you say snore? Yeah, it's interesting. About 55% of men habitually snore, and about 40% of women habitually snore. So it's a very, very common symptom. 
But as you pointed out, Marianne, not everybody who snores obviously has sleep apnea. So snoring, when combined with these other symptoms, like sleepiness, poor sleep, and stoppages in breathing, that is a sort of a trigger that there might be sleep apnea. And about only about 10 or 15 percent uh, of people who actually snore end up having true sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a there's a complete orchestra in my home because my husband and I each could win a snoring contest, and the dogs <laughs> we we had three until recently, and they all we all snored in harmony. It was really fun, very noisy place. And I think too, it's important for for patients to know, and they can't always know unless they see their doctor, how we distinguish between between fatigue and sleepiness because fatigue can be from a low blood count or um, right. you know overall and the other symptoms might include morning headaches I, I remember till I was diagnosed I was waking up with a headache every morning and it dawned on me right. and, and the nightmares I was having probably I'd be you know my heart would be pounding because my oxygen levels were low and I'd have a dream that somebody was chasing after me or I was falling down steps right. and it all makes sense to me now yeah right yeah, those are symptoms, and maybe to carry it one step forward, some of the other symptoms are memory decrement, like people can't remember that well the next day because their brains have not gotten a lot of oxygen. Their mood begins to diminish, like they become more depressed or irritable and moody during the day. Some people will say their degree of, of, of emotional excitement diminishes, their libido decreases, their sure. sexual excitement isn't there, you know. Um, and uh, and some people also begin to complain that um, they eat more, they gain weight. So mm-hmm. we see a lot of people are overweight with sleep apnea because their appetites have increased, their hormonal changes have forced them to eat more and gain more weight. So these are all common occurrences in the sleep apnea patient and common symptoms. And, if, and it makes total sense from what you were saying in the first segment that if your rhythm is off, your uh, diurnal rhythm of um, adrenaline rising in the morning and falling with quiet and darker, you know, d- uh, d- um, at, <laughs> decreasing the light uh, exposure at nighttime, you're throwing off all those other hormones you're describing, your um, right. emotions, your sexual function, and it adds, it can uh, add to the risk for hypertension, heart disease. Right. I know I, there are patients for our listeners who have abnormal heart rhythms, such as atrial fibrillation. So mm-hmm. one of the causes for atrial fibrillation is drops in oxygen levels. So if you're snoring away there and not getting the help of positive airway pressure or something to keep those oxygen levels up, it's going to increase your risk for arrhythmias, heart attack, stroke. Um, and then the other hormone that can be thrown out of control is your insulin, uh, which, as you say, can lead to diabetes. So... The other mm-hmm. causes for, um, you know, we often um, think, or people might think that obesity is a common clinical finding, but not always. I mean, I'm sure you have plenty of very um, people who are not obese, and it's usually mm-hmm. more, if I'm, if I'm right, Carl, connected with extra flesh, maybe around your neck or waist, rather than general obesity. Is that true? Uh, absolutely. And the obesity can do that because people gain weight, obviously. Their weight goes to the throat also, so mm-hmm. the throat becomes smaller, so that could do it. But you're absolutely right. A lot of thin people have sleep apnea because their their uh, jaws are are sort of retruded, basically. In other words, their their jaws are look like they're tiny, but actually what's happening is that the entire jawbone is back further than it should, meaning it's obstructing the throat or making the throat tinier. So, yeah, absolutely. Thin people can have apnea if their throats are too tar- too narrow or too small. And unfortunately, that's not something they've done. It's just 
just that they're born that way and their yes. throats have developed that way. Absolutely. Yeah. One other thing I want to mention, with going back to our earlier point, is that you know you see a lot of people who are sleepy at the wheel, who are having mm. accidents at the wheel, right? So and many scary. of those folks, it turns out, have sleep apnea, right? That's sure. not diagnosed correctly, mm-hmm. and they're falling asleep and driving off the road. So a very sort of pervasive condition with a lot of consequences. So I think I guess anything that would narrow your airway. I know I remember. Um, memorizing med school that some conditions lead to an enlarged tongue or if your tonsils or uh, adenoids are enlarged that could be an issue or even nasal polyps but I think um, I watch the anesthesia docs check my patients before they're sedated for um, colonoscopy and all and uh, I remember hearing that they tell the patient if if you can't get three figures between your Adam's apple and your chin that that suggests that you have a small jawbone am I right that that puts you at risk for uh, right Sleep right. apnea. And very much so. Mm-hmm. Something we do is what we do in, in the doctor in our offices, we use what's called a malum potty classification score. Sure. Where we ask the patient to sort of stick out the tongue. And if you, we cannot see anything past their, 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 the roof of their mouths, that's called a malum potty class four. And that, that means that they have a 70% risk, that 70% risk of having sleep apnea. So, absolutely right. The throat is small in these apnea patients. So, Carl, when you find patients that have um, sleep apnea, how do you go about treating it? Of course, it depends on the person's reason. We check their medicines and make sure they're not on sedatives like um, Valium and all that might make you a little more likely. But um, how would you go about saying this is the treatment for you? Because I know there are several choices. In the mild cases, Mariana, where, they, where it's a very mild condition, some maybe some not so aggressive means can can do the trick for us. So, like stopping smoking, avoiding alcohol, sedatives, things that sedatives that are the ones that basically make the throat even more relaxed and increase apnea. Losing some weight, right? Losing a few pounds. Avoiding sleep deprivation. Sometimes forcing yourself to lie on your side rather than your back. These are sort of common common self-help techniques that often help for the milder patients, patients with milder, milder levels of sleep apnea. But if the apnea levels aren't so mild or patients have heart disease or other conditions that the apnea could worsen, then we go initially to something called CPAP or continuous positive airway pressure. Basically what that is, is a little tiny box that sits at the side of the bed and pushes air through a tube into the nose. And that air basically keeps the throat open while people are sleeping at bedtime or at nighttime. So by wearing a small mask or a small tube, they can keep the throat open and sleep much better. And believe it or not, CPAP can be a lifesaver. It actually decreases sleepiness levels, decreases the heart problems, and really solves the problem in many, many people. Now, the problem with CPAP is that some people just simply cannot use it, right? Some people are claustrophobic or they just can't tolerate something on their nose and mouth. And, you know, unfortunately, it's not meant for everyone. And that's one of the reasons why at Jefferson, we have a fairly comprehensive treatment program of multiple doctors of the different disciplines working together. So we tailor the treatments, different kinds of treatments for different patients. So as an example, some people who cannot use CPAP use oral appliances. These are splints or braces that go in the mouth, which basically push the jaw forward just a little bit and make sure that the throat's open. And that by doing that, people can breathe much, much better at night. Or some people go through nutritional counseling and mm-hmm. medical weight loss programs or even bariatric surgery or upper airway surgery techniques to be able to help themselves. In addition, 
we have what's called upper airway stimulation therapy, which is a little neurostimulator, an implant, which we'll be talking about later on with Dr. Boone, which yes. basically helps people resolve the apnea problem with, 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 with uh, this novel technique. So a lot of different ways to solve the apnea problem, but the important point is there are a lot of options available. And do something because, and I wanted to mention that our next guest, Dr. Moritz Boone, and you have co-authored a book, and we're so fortunate to have you, a true expert in sleep medicine. I just wanted to say finally with CPAP, I know a lot of people say, it feels like I'm suffocating with the mask, but there's so many different little appliances. I know I use one that looks like a football chin strap. It rests on my upper lip, and there are openings mm -hmm. in the tube that just float the air into my nose, easy capizzi. I feel so much better. And mm -hmm. as you said, don't sleep on your back because I guess your tongue can fall backwards. Right. If you're on your side, it's a little safer. Call right. Dr. Gramji. If people want to make an appointment with you, they call. 1-800-JEFF-NOW, J-E-F-F-N-O-W. And we'll be more than happy to see people and help them. You are awesome and radical. Thank you so much, <laughs> Dr. My classmate from medical school, Dr. Carl Dagramji. Go class of 1980, Jefferson Medical All College. Right. Thanks, right, Carl. Man. Thanks so much. Take care. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. And welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. Now we're joined by Dr. Moritz Boone, Associate Professor from the Department of Otolaryngology head and neck surgery at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. Dr. Boone will explain in detail a treatment for sleep apnea called Inspire, a device that stimulates the tongue to contract, move forward, and open your airway during sleep. Welcome, Mal. So glad you can join us. So thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Yes. And I was just... Um, talking with our colleague, Dr. Carl Dagramji, and I know that you and he work together a lot with uh, sleep apnea patients, and you even co-authored a book. How long would you say that this um, Inspire or stimulation of the upper airway has been available? So it was FDA approved in 2014. Um, of course, it was in trials for a lot longer, so we have a lot of data on patients for a lot longer. But the short story is it's been around since 2014 when the FDA approved it based on the amazing results that were seen in the initial trials. And so um, how long would you say you've really been doing several per year? Uh, we were very fortunate that we were actually the second commercial site in the United States. So we were active wow. in 2014, and we've been very busy ever since, just given uh, it's, the impact it's had on patients and obviously the struggles that many patients have with a traditional therapy called CPAP. Mm -hmm. And I know there are three versions uh, with different companies, but this is Inspire's the only FDA-approved um, stimulator for now. So is there upper airway stimulation? Is that a good treatment for everybody or... No, so, you know, I think it's important to understand, and perhaps Dr. DeGramji had some discussion about this, but when somebody has sleep apnea, basically what happens is that when they go to sleep, parts of their throat collapse. But mm -hmm. what, where, and how things collapse is unique for any given individual. So this is great for certain patterns of airway collapse. Um, it's not perfect for all patterns of airway collapse. But I think one important thing to understand is, is that uh, for for what I do in my job, um, for those who are not candidates for this, we can always find alternative solutions. There are other things that can be offered. But it has really been a great therapy for, for many patients um, and really has revolutionized the care of, of sleep apnea in general. 
uh, just again, given the struggles that many people suffer with with CPAP. So how does it work? Uh, you're stimulating the nerve that makes your tongue contract. Yep. So the so the, what, it, what it does, so the beauty, first and foremost, this nerve that we, we stimulate called the hypoglossal nerve is what's called a motor nerve. So we can stimulate it, and it doesn't produce any sensation, so it doesn't produce any discomfort or anything else, so people shouldn't expect to feel shocking sensation or anything like that. But what it does, basically, is it stimulates that nerve and causes the tongue to move forward, and in doing so, it actually drags some of the rest of the airway with it and, can, and opens up the entire airway. So the the beauty of it is that it's a single intervention which targets the entire upper airway to, to establish opening during sleep. And I think it's good that you just mentioned to patients that they don't feel it because we have sensory nerves, nerves that help us feel, obviously, and then motor nerves give us motion. So that's really important for people to hear. And so how does this happen, Mal? Is it a, a same-day surgery or how does the whole process take place? Yeah, so it, it's, it's a little bit of a process, but the, the surgery itself, so, so I should mention first that there's a process of evaluation where we determine whether patients are candidates. Um, once we go through that process, well, I, I, should, I should also mention that that uh, usually entails a very minor procedure called the drug-induced sleep endoscopy, where we basically identify what is mechanically causing the airway collapse in any given patient and make sure that they're good candidates. Um, that's a very brief, minor procedure. And then from there, um, the ones that are determined to be a candidate, the surgery itself is outpatient. It takes a couple hours, and it requires a couple of different incisions. Uh, but for anybody who has been through traditional sleep surgery, the recovery is generally very benign. Patients are often managed pretty easily with just over-the-counter pain medications like Tylenol or Motrin. And what happens thereafter is, is that we give the patients a chance to heal. And uh, after that, we activate their device. Uh, they actually have a remote that allows them to control this on their own. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, they use the remote to turn it on at night. And so it's not on, of course, during the day. It's just on active when they're sleeping. And we program in a range of settings that allows the patient to self-adjust, getting used to the therapy over time. Um, one of the beauties of this therapy is, is that it, it's, it's, it can be modified and altered, sort of custom to each individual patient. So patients can really um, adapt and do really well with it. Mm-hmm. And then last thing, part of this, this piece to the equation is, is that after they've gotten used to it, we send the patients back to a sleep lab, somebody like Carl DeGromji's lab, where there's a technician present who adjusts the therapy while they're sleep, sleeping to try and find the optimal settings for the patient. And that kind of is where the story ends, um, mm-hmm. uh, but that's sort of the, the major process that patients go through when they, uh, when they receive this therapy. So that makes perfect sense. You can do a sleep study prior to uh, inserting the stimulator and then probably a sleep study after and, and adjust it as accordingly. So what does this look like, Mal? If you, do you plant the stimulator under the skin in the person's chest and then feed the wire up, to, you know, a tiny wire up to that nerve? So, so there's, how does there's, that? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so there's a tiny incision just underneath the chin that basically is to place this little thing around the nerve. Okay. And then there's a, an incision in the chest uh, on the pectoralis muscle, so that's that big muscle that's you know underneath your breast, mm-hmm. um, and that's where the sort of the brains and the battery of the operation go. That looks a little bit like a pacemaker, a little bit mm-hmm. smaller than your average pacemaker, and then there's a third incision with a, where we uh, place the part of the device that senses when you breathe. It's in the, the lower ribs. And then there are, of course, wires that connect each of these components up, but those are under the skin and people don't see or feel that. Generally, the only thing that people can appreciate to any extent is that little pacemaker-like component. So it's really pretty um, not even there. And I know I've spoken to patients who have had uh, laser therapy on the uvula, or for our listeners, that's that little punching bag in the middle of your throat. 
But now Tarzan yeah. says, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> and, and that must be pretty painful to have that laser. This is, sounds like it's pretty, pretty tolerable, which yeah, is great so to hear. It's surprising. So, you know, I obviously treat patients with those kinds of procedures that you just described on the uvula, and those are really, really rocky and rough. Mm-hmm. This is, again, you know, I, I'd, I'd be honest with you, if I sort of conceptualize that, I would think, boy, it's, it would probably be pretty uncomfortable. But in reality, fortunately, patients have a really benign, easy recovery and don't have a lot of pain. Yeah. And, um, you know, for our listeners, I remind you that I'm a GI doctor, which means I take care of people who have acid reflux and you're an ear, nose and throat doctor. So we often share patients who have reflux because acid reflux can cause heartburn. But if it comes high enough, it leads to burning in the throat, even hoarseness and possibly sleep apnea. Apnea. If enough fluid comes up, it's going to make you possibly choke in your sleep and have apnea. Or I think if you have sleep apnea, for whatever reason, your your airways not um, is lax, that that those sudden arousals from sleep can lead to reflux. So these can go hand in glove. Yes, reflux and sleep apnea. Yeah, they sure can. So you know, we certainly recognize that one of the things that can happen is is when you have these pauses in the breathing, you you essentially sort of create a vacuum in your chest, and you actually draw the acid from your stomach up into the throat. Um, so patients will often have coexistent reflux, and also uh, the reflux, of course, can initiate, as you described, some of these uh, episodes where they actually have spasms of their vocal cords and things that can actually make the apnea worse. So there's really a sort of a complicated interplay between these conditions, and we certainly do share a lot of patients, um, uh, uh, fortunately. Yes. Well, and, and I, I guess, too, how do you decide, I guess, before a patient has um, even Inspire, do they usually get endoscopy or... Do you do any type of um, acid measurements when you're doing your preliminary studies? We don't routinely, but we certainly, of course, routinely ask questions about whether they have reflux-related issues, and we will Mm -hmm. often treat that. And, of course, if they have pretty significant issues, we'll often send them back to folks like you so that they can get the best care possible. Yes. Well, we're we're very fortunate because um, Dr. Boone has um, a patient of his who's done very well, and she's going to be speaking to us in the next segment. But it's great that you were able to explain this so well, because there are so many people out there that need help, and they don't know the several options that are available. And again, I mentioned that Dr. Boone is from Jefferson. And if someone wanted to learn more about Inspire, and, and by the way, there are only three centers in Pennsylvania that offer this. And to reach Dr. Boone for an appointment, a person would call? Uh, 215-955-6760. Okay. Beautiful. And if you forget, you can always call 1-800-JEFF-NOW and ask for Dr. Boone. Mal, thank you so much for joining us today. That was really helpful. I learned a lot myself. So stay well and thank you for your help. Thank you so much for having me. A real privilege to be here. Uh, Thank you. Thanks. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. Welcome back to our final segment of Your Radio Doctor today. And now we welcome Linda, an accountant from Bucks County, who will tell us her experience with treatment for sleep apnea. Linda, you didn't do well with CPAP or a dental appliance, and I know you had throat surgery that was quite painful. Tell us about that. Well, I had laser surgery to shrink the uvula. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very painful. I couldn't swallow for about 10 days, and in the end, it didn't help anyway. 
Oh, that's rough. And then you read about Inspire. We just talked to Dr. Boone about it. And I know you see him as your physician. And it's the nerve stimulation product that's been approved by the FDA. So you did your own research and learned that there were three hospitals in Pennsylvania. How did you decide where to go? Well, when I did look at the hospitals, um, I was born and raised in Philly, so I knew Jefferson and I knew the reputation. And it was also convenient for public transportation. Um, it it has helped me. People need to understand it's not just a push of the button. Um, it really is a process, and it's a, it's a commitment to testing, uh, going through insurance coverage, the surgery, which, by the way, is normally just a um, in and out one day one day process, and then about four to six weeks for the healing, and then the activation of the actual implant. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not for everybody, but people need to talk to their doctor for an option to see if this one is, cur- is good for you. Sure. And um, I know that you mentioned that it's convenient to public transportation. As you say, this is a process and you have to commit to the testing and multiple visits. Um, but then you were telling me how pretty spotless the healing was, that you have barely any kind of mark on your skin or scar. Tell us about that. Well, normally the procedure afterwards would take just over-the-counter pain pain meds, a Tylenol or an ibuprofen, mm-hmm. and um, there was some swelling in my neck, which is to be expected, sure. but I had surgery on a Friday. I went back to work the following Monday. Um, you cannot see the scars that I have from the implant. Well, that's wonderful. And I know you've gotten your life back. You, you're you an amateur photographer and you're able to climb steps with your he- heavy uh, camera equipment and take landscape photos. You've done two 5K runs. It's a lot better than I could do. And now I, I laughed when you said that you can travel with your husband and you don't have to get separate hotel rooms, um, which is awesome. And, and more importantly, you said that your heart doctor saw improvement on your last heart exam, which is pretty reassuring. So, Linda, what would you say is your most important message? I think the most important message for me uh, to people would be no matter what the treatment OSA needs to be treated, the apnea Mm -hmm. needs to be treated. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, just getting out of bed without turning off the alarm is a big accomplishment. Um, At my age, I just don't want to lose any more time feeling drowsy and unable to function. You're so right. Sorry. Every day is a gift. Well, Linda, thank you for sharing your story. People have learned a lot from listening to you and know more about this as an option. As you say, no one size fits all. And it's great you have a doctor with whom you have a wonderful relationship and you found the right fit for you. And I wish you lots of good rest of sleep. (laughs) Thank you, doctor. I appreciate the opportunity. And And if you forget how to snore, just give me a call. Okay. No, I don't. That won't happen. <laughs> Take care. Stay well, Linda. Thanks so much. Thank you, doctor. Great summer. Now, you're real champions. This segment is called Pray With Your Feet. Ed Snyder, not from the Flyers, rest his soul. This is the Ed Snyder who spent his life scoring goals in a different game, the game of life. Born in the middle of the Depression, his dad lost his business. His parents weren't supportive. They thought I just didn't have it. I had asthma, low grades. I was an introvert. After all Jewish lower school, Overbrook High in 1948 was a big adjustment. Ed knew he wasn't an athlete and would never go to college. But the track coach challenged him. 
You must not want it. If you're going to find an excuse for life, I don't want you on the team. Well, Ed worked hard and ran with teammates Wilt Chamberlain and three-time Olympian Ira Davis. His Catholic coach also insisted that Ed skip practice and go to synagogue on holy days and had the other boys commit to church as well. And on a day that Ed was threatened by a group of thugs, it was his African-American track friends who protected him. The boys didn't see color. They loved each other as teammates. Coach was the first angel in Ed's life and taught him to look at failure as a stepping stone. With a full-time day job, Ed finished college as a Temple Al in night school and is now an adjunct professor at Penn State. Then came Rosalind, the angel he met in college. They married two days after graduation. He joined the Army and moved to South Carolina. A Southern Baptist landlady showed them an apartment. He saw a cross on the wall. On moving day, it was freshly painted, the cross was gone, and the landlady introduced them to a Jewish couple to make them feel welcome. She even helped Roz find a job. Ed marveled at her kindness. His third angel was his master sergeant in the army who chose Ed to be the chief clerk because Jewish boys don't drink. And later, Ed ran a company of 600 men while the commander took a few days off at Christmas. Ed was fueled by these life lessons. When his own sons lost their track coach, Ed was the temporary coach for 27 years. He started a Boy Scout troop in the synagogue in Northeast Philly, became the district chairman, and stayed until 2005, infusing young people with self-esteem. Ed was an activist long before it was cool. He lectures in churches, temples, schools about the black liberators at Auschwitz who freed the Jewish people in World War II. Now, a local Baptist church calls him to mentor struggling kids. Sharing stories of his own failures with a positive twist has led many back to school. He even gave a gift card to a boy to buy school clothes. Ed started a lunch and learn program. Each summer, people from his temple provide lunch and tutoring for needy children in three churches. And he collects donations for the Ardmore Food Pantry. And at age 85, he still works in real estate. Ed and Roz were close to a boy with autism in their neighborhood. One day, the mom brought the young man to see Roz in a nursing home. He lit up when he saw her and said, I love you, after being silent for months. A business colleague had a young woman assistant who wanted to meet the Pope on his visit to Philly. Ed wrote letters to the Archbishop in Vatican, which helped her into the cathedral for Mass, and then she met the Pope in Rome. He framed copies of the letters and her picture with the Pope, and of course, it landed on the desk of the Pope's secretary. Ed's love has no boundaries. He embraces people of all colors and all religions. In fact, he often attends Mass with Catholic friends and sometimes reads the Koran. A man who inspires all of us to love thy neighbor. Ed Snyder is a man who walks with the angels and prays with his feet. Congratulations to this week's Your Real Champion. Tune in next week and learn how to protect your skin and your eyes from the summer sun. Send us champion stories and questions for me to answer on info at yourradiodoctor.com. That's info at yourradiodoctor.com. Stay with us for the sounds of Sinatra. Love you, Sid Mark. Dooby dooby doo. And remember, your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.